There's a story that many, many years ago, an English earl visited the Fiji Islands. And he met with one of the elderly chiefs. And this, this tribe had uh, been ministered to by some missionaries and had been converted to Christ. And this earl was just beside himself. And he told this chief, he's such a great leader. How could you be fooled by such a, a silly story of Jesus dying on a cross? He said to the chief, I'm sorry you've been so foolish to accept their story. Well, this angered the chief quite greatly. And he directed the earl's vision to a mountainside. And he said, do you see that great rock over there? On it, we smash the heads of our victims. And the furnace next to it, that's where we roasted their bodies. If it hadn't been for those good missionaries and the love of Jesus that changed us from cannibals to Christians, you'd never leave this place alive. You'd better thank the Lord for the gospel, otherwise you'd be our supper. I would love to know the rest of that story with the Earl his response was, I'm not, I was not given that. But I love this testimony of this chief. What I once was, I am no longer. And yet because of the gospel, because of Jesus, because of the Bible, by God's grace, I'm not what I used to be. Amen. And this is the message that Stephen preaches of Moses. And when you look at the story of Moses, it is not... An impressive one as far as Moses on his own strength. I was just reminded again this week. This is the Lord's work. It is not my work. I, I, am, I really am a broken vessel. Uh, I, I struggle just like anyone else. And the Lord in His grace chooses to use me in, in ways that are different than others. And, and yet, I, I can't take any credit for anything. You know, people look at People that God uses and say, oh, they've got their, their whole life together. Oh, beloved, that's, that's a lie the devil wants you to believe to keep you still in your seat. And I pray after this message that you will be moved to serve. Even if it is serving, as Pastor Chris said, some children with some runny noses in our nursery. We're looking at the care of Moses of God's people in verses 17 through 43 of Acts chapter 7. And Stephen is going to focus a lot of his efforts on Moses because the Pharisees said that their discipler was Moses, that they were disciples of Moses. And so as we look at this, it's very important that we see the, the, Moses as the Pharisees' leader. They say they follow in his footsteps. So Stephen is going to use their guy to condemn them. Stephen is going to point to the exodus to elevate Christ. And the exodus is the single most important event in the history of Israel. It was that miracle that they never forgot. This is why Stephen focuses on the conditions that led to it. Verses 17 through 22, I will not read every verse, 
But I want you to, to hear what Stephen does as he turns from Abraham to Moses. He says, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. He then goes on to explain that it was at this time that Moses was born, that he was sent down the river, and of all people to receive this beautiful child was Pharaoh's daughter. And he was raised in the education system of the Egyptians. Stephen is turning to Moses because he really bridges the gap from Abraham. And as we said last week, he really just sort of skims over Jacob and Isaac. He deals with Joseph, but then after Joseph, we don't really have a whole lot of the genealogy of Israel. We go from Joseph in Genesis 50 to Moses in Exodus 1. And so this is where Stephen goes. God is being faithful to what he swore to Abraham and enlarging this people. He told Abraham, you will be the father of nations. But there is one nation which would be special. And the nation had the name Israel. It is likely at the time of the Exodus that Israel was a nation of over a million people. Now understand, from the time of Joseph to the Exodus, you're looking at roughly 140 years. And so God really blessed Israel with children. And they multiplied. To the point that this new king that shows up doesn't know Joseph. And what happens is Israel starts growing and growing and growing and at an exponential rate. And Egypt starts looking around going, this is not good. In fact, if you were to look at Exodus 1.12, they're afraid that Israel will join Egypt's enemies and then Egypt will be conquered. And so rather than treating them well to keep them in good graces, they deal treacherously with them. And this king who does not know Jacob enslaves them. But the more Egypt afflicted Israel, the more God blessed them with children, and the more they grew, and the more they were blessed by God. And they were the dread of Egypt. And you know what? Egypt became the dread of Israel. Because Egypt enslaved them. Now, this continues, this, this growth continues, this king who doesn't know Joseph. Now, again, this is a rough outline. A rough outline. About 140 years from the death of Joseph to the Exodus, uh, we, we can sort of trace that out. So roughly 50 years have, has passed since the death of Joseph to the king who shows up who doesn't know Joseph. I mean, that's a little more than two generations. And so as we look at this, we, we wonder, how could it have gone so differently? Well, think of our culture. We have a whole generation who knows nothing of 9-11. Only what they hear on September 11th, one day, oh yeah, that, that must have been a pretty significant event, and they just move on. That was 22 years ago. And we have a whole generation who 
completely unaffected by it. I mean, some of you remember uh, when, when either your father or grandfather served in the world wars. I know of it. I knew it affected the world, but for me personally, it didn't affect me. I wasn't around yet. In my generation, they don't think of World War I, World War II the same way you do. It doesn't take much for someone who thinks he's a god to move on from the past. They're no longer thankful that some guy they don't know anymore saved them from death and famine, that if he hadn't been there, that he wouldn't have been born because his parents would have died in the famine. He doesn't care. Just moves right on. Doesn't take much. And so people 4,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, aren't all that different than we are today. And so you look at how this could have happened. But because he doesn't know Joseph, he starts to deal treacherously with the people, and the way which he decides to keep Israel from growing is to kill the boys. Every child under two, throw them in the Nile. First he tells the midwives to kill the children, and they feared God, and they didn't do it. And so then he has his soldiers going out to find the babies. And the way in which he would do that is he would take, likely what they would do, they'd take a child in and they would make the child cry, because one crying baby creates more crying babies, and that's how they would do it. Likely pitching, just pinching the toe to bring about a fussiness in that child, which would cause another child to, grow, to cry. So if you were trying to hide your children, you couldn't do it. And so the babies were thrown in denial. Now, here's the thing. Stephen cannot fathom to say that Pharaoh murdered the children. He just simply says he made them expose their babies. And that's just a figure of speech. It's a soft way to say that they kill children. You know, we've got a little phrase like that in our day, don't we? It's called pro-choice. We don't walk around saying, let's murder the babies. No, we say we're going to be pro-choice for mother's reproductive rights. And we completely ignore the fact that there's a live human being. So I want to just bring it to your attention, because the text brings it to our attention, that when it comes to this bill... On, in November to vote for issue one, which they're trying to bring the most aggressive abortion rights into the state and, and all of the country, really. See, they're, they're calling the baby a cancer. And it needs to be out of the mother. That's, that's how I want you to think of the child, a cancer. Remove it. They don't want you to think of it as a human being because if they have you thinking of like a human being well, you wouldn't ever vote for this bill. And so I will simply tell you that this issue on our balance is an absolute disaster. There is a way for you to go and look at the language of the bill that has been helped to explain to you what it means. It just simply means, I think it's understandthelanguage.com. They, they lay it out for you. You can go and look at that for yourself. But this bill is a celebration of abortion. It, it, that's, there's, you can't describe it any other way. And so I'm praying we strike, as Ohio, as we strike the bill dead. But I, I will simply tell you, some of you want to know how to vote. I, I'm just going to tell you this. 
I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I'm just going to tell you this. You want to bring abortion to Ohio in this way? You can't vote for it without sinning. It's against Scripture. We have to stand up for what is right and what is true. We have to be bold. We have to be voices in the culture when, when there is a void of truth. And people don't want to stand up and, and say, well, we, 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 don't want to offend, we don't want to offend anybody. What are you talking about offend people? We're going to have children in heaven who never had a chance to live because we decided it was more important for someone reproductive rights than to have a child live. We're so confused in our country. And so, Christian, do not sin in this vote. Someone has said that the most dangerous place to be alive right now is in a mother's womb. And it's absolutely true. The most dangerous place to be at this time when Moses was living was a little baby. And so Moses' parents concealed him as long as they could. When they couldn't, they put him in this basket, sent him down the Nile River, and this is just, Lord, we believe you're sovereign. We're going to take care of this beautiful child, and he certainly did. Laid him right in the arms of Pharaoh's daughter. I, I will tell you, she knew he was a Hebrew. He would have been in the basket with Hebrew cloth, and he would have looked like a Hebrew. She drew him out of the water, and she found him beautiful, and she brought him to live in her father's house, who had this whole decree. God's hand was on him. And she raised Moses in the Egyptian education system. And as you look at the way in which Stephen explains this, when his parents put him in the basket, it's like he died to them that day because they didn't know it was going to happen. Can you imagine when they find out that he went to Pharaoh's daughter and she was going to raise him as an Egyptian? I mean, in, in his parents' mind, I mean, their baby was gone. He was going to be raised in the radicalized education of the Egyptians. What hope did they have? Well, their hope was God. And God used these events to bring about his plans. Because here's the reality. Moses was extremely well educated. The Egyptians, in, in their education, would have brought him up understanding languages and writing. Is it any wonder that it is Moses, of all people, who writes the first five books of the Bible? He had the education to do it. And so while God could have used anyone, he used the man who had the tools provided by God through pagans to write the first five books of the Bible and how foundational are they to our faith. See, for many of us, we look back at our past and we don't see how God can bring anything good out of it. We see scars and we see pain. God doesn't see it that way. God sees perfect circumstances to bring about his will in your life. Amen. Yes, you and I don't see good coming. You and I don't know how he could do it and how he can turn it for his glory. But I'll remind you, that is none of your business. That is God's business. 
Our business is to, to, is to trust him and have our faith in him regardless of what we think. Where is our hope? Where is our faith? Is it in God alone or is it in our emotions and our feelings and our ideas and our plans? It's been a hard lesson for me this week is there's been a lot that has gone wrong in my life. Just little things that really in the end probably don't matter all that much. But in my, my life, it was like the biggest, most important thing. And the Lord is just teaching me, you will not control this. And I will bring good somehow. I don't know what the good will be. I may not see it on this side of eternity, but he will bring good. Where's our faith? What are we hoping in? And so we must rest assured that our past, our pains, our failures, our scars will not keep God from using us. Some, some people I talk to, I'm too old. Moses was 80 years old when God called him to lead people into the wilderness for 40 years. Now, I, I know we've got some 80-year-olds here today. I'm not saying God's going to have you do something so dramatic. But God is not limited by your age. And so to say no because you're old is foolish. Now, there are some things that we're not going to ask you to do unless you're the spryest 80-year-old in the world. But when you're approached, and it's something that you can do, get out of your mind that you're too old. There's no retirement plan in the gospel. Trust the Lord and see what he will do with you. See, Moses, was, was, he grew in the wisdom of the Egyptians. That means that skillful activity came about because of his education. And he grew mighty in the word and deed. And that word mighty means he was able to convince people. He was a, he was a debater. He was an arguer. Now, he, he didn't have the best speech. He, he stuttered. But he still had good reasoning. He had good logic. He was raised in all of this. And God used this for his good. So we, we look at the condition... But then you come to the conflict. For, for the first 40 years of Moses' life, his life is broken into three 40s. The first 40 years he's raised under the Egyptian education system and law. The second 40 is in complete obscurity. In the last 40, he's leading Israel through the wilderness, to the promised land. But we see the conflict in verses 23 to 29. Stephen says, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, your brethren... Why do you do wrong to one another? But he who had done his brother wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. You see the conflict now that is in Moses. Once he recognizes who he is, He's a Hebrew, 
It came into his heart to visit his people. It means, it's a figure of speech, means he's moved to do something. He's moved to go with his people. The author of Hebrews states that this was an act of faith on Moses' part to reject the Egyptian legacy that he was handed down and to go to his people. Hebrews 11.24 says, By faith, when he, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called a, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the, the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Are we looking to the reward today? There's a lot happening in our world. Every time you turn around, there's bad news. You know, you know what bad news should remind us? This is not our home. And we don't live for this world. God is preparing a place for us. And when we get there, it's going to be amazing and wonderful because he is there. And sin is dealt with and gone. It's not yet. And so when we see wickedness and evil, we must be like Moses. I'm not planting my flag here. This is not where I'm making my claim. I'm waiting for a better country. That's where I'm going. But while among his people, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster really abusing one of his own countrymen, and he is angered. That word suffer wrong, it speaks of injustice. And so Moses decides, I'm going to be judge, jury, executioner. He looks this way, he looks that way. Seeing nobody, he kills the taskmaster. And it's likely that at 40 years of age, God had placed in his heart to be the leader of his people out of Egypt. Moses just accelerated God's timeline. I'll deliver this, this Israelite. I'll deliver this one. And eventually we'll, we'll get them all out of here. Well, it didn't work out that way. Because he thinks he's a hero. Israel's not impressed. It's likely because of his past of being raised in Pharaoh's house that they did not accept him as a Hebrew. It's likely that Moses was thinking, how could they reject me? I just saved one of my brethren, one of their brethren. Well, they didn't see it that way. They, they, would, have, they would have looked at Moses as sort of an outsider. Moses really now has no home. He doesn't fit with the Egyptians. And he doesn't fit with Israel. See, when Moses tries to accelerate God's timeline, he had to be reminded that it was in God's timing, not his own. And that's a plan that we have to follow as well. Sometimes we say, well, I don't know why God isn't. Well, God's not because it's not his timeline, and maybe it's not his ultimate plan in the end. But do we trust that his plan is better than our own? A lot of times we say no, because we don't live by faith. And if we're honest with ourselves, and we just, we just deal with ourselves honestly, and we come before God, we confess that as sin, and we trust him to work in us, to change us, so that our heart lines with his will. And I promise you, 
as God's word promises you, that as we do that, we may not get what we want, but we have everything we need. And in the end, what God will give you is far better than what you could ever have wanted. The next day, Moses tries to reconcile two of his brethren. To his shock, they know about the murder, and they say, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? And Moses now has to flee. I want you to see that Moses' desire for reconciliation, it's a good one. He just couldn't do it. He couldn't bring reconciliation between two brethren who had the same goal, the same, the same background, the same heritage. You want to know what Jesus did? He didn't take two brethren and reconcile them. He took his enemies and he reconciled them to God. God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were sinners, enemies of God, wanting nothing to do with him, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. That's the gospel. Jesus has reconciled us back to God, those of us who were his enemies. Moses can't even reconcile two friends together. Jesus reconciled his enemies. And so Moses has to flee Egypt. He knows they're going to be looking for him. And that word fled gives the idea of disappearing quickly. He falls off the radar and he flees into the, into the wilderness of Midian. And for 40 years, Moses lives in, in obscurity. And, and he, he marries. He has a family. His father-in-law is good to him. But for the next 40 years, his life is pretty boring. Nothing really happens. He's a shepherd, which is a lowly position. And he's just out in the wilderness. Moses wants to do some great things, and yet it wasn't the right time. You ever felt like God has put you on the shelf? You need to wait. I have been there. I have great desires, and, and life is a little bit difficult, and it's just, just like you're in the wilderness. It's hard to find the water, hard to find the freshness. God seems far away. Sometimes God puts you in the wilderness for a time to prepare you. Because in the wilderness, it was, Moses was prepared. He was humbled. He, he, he raised a family. He, he then had, uh, had to learn how to actually lead someone. He, le- he led his wife, led his children. He learned what it meant to submit to his father-in-law, who was the head of the whole household. See, good leadership is born by learning how to follow. You can't be a leader if you've never followed anyone. You don't know what it means. If you don't know how to follow, you don't know how to lead. And so the Lord had to humble his servant, to bring him in the wilderness, to prepare him for the moment when he would lead Israel out of Egypt. We've seen the condition and the conflict, and now we see the commissioning in verses 30 through 36. Here's what Stephen says. Again, remember why he's preaching this sermon. It's it's to remind the Sanhedrin who are saying that Stephen's doctrine is not right. And here is Stephen saying, I'm agreeing with everything that Moses did. I know exactly what he did. I agree with him the way you agree with him. But I understand it better than you do because you're not understanding what God did through Moses. 
and you're not seeing how Moses pointed to Jesus. So understand that as as we go through this. Verses 30 through 36. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out, and after he had shown them wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. We see the commissioning of Moses in these verses. And he has Moses in the wilderness for 40 years. At the point of 80, I think Moses thinks his life is pretty much done. He's, he's no longer thinking of himself as this, uh, this magical leader. This, this guy who's going to just everything falls into place. Because he speaks, people listen. Not the case anymore. Likely he has to fight with the sheep. The sheep don't care that he used to be a prince in Egypt. They just want to go their own way. It's a fight. It's, it's obscure. Life is obscure. But one day, he's out with the sheep, and the Lord appears to him. The angel of the Lord appears to him in a burning bush. We call it, that's what we call the burning bush. It's just a thorn bush. It's just, it's, people say, well, they found Mount Sinai, they found the bush, and it's like real lush bush. God used a thorn bush. That's the, that's the language that is in Scripture. That's a language in the New Testament and the Old. It's just a weed that was on the side of the mountain. And it was burning. Driving home the other night, Maddie and I saw a bonfire, and boy, do they have a bonfire. You couldn't miss it. That's exactly what happened here. Moses is on the mountain, and he, there's this burning bush. And he says, this bush isn't burning up. I've got to go see what's going on. That's a typical man, by the way. Ooh, what's happening? This is neat. I talk to, I gotta have something to talk about with my wife about today, and this is this is new. And he goes there, and lo and behold, the Lord speaks through the bush. Out of the bush comes a voice, and it says to Moses, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hears those words. Now he knows of God. He has had some education in his own people's background as well. He knows he's a Hebrew. He's had to understand. He knows who Abraham is. He knows who Isaac is. He knows who Jacob is. He knows who their God is. He knows the promises that were made to him. And now he's terrified. Because this God is now speaking to him as he spoke to Abraham. Moses terrified. That word dare not to look means Moses will not dare challenge this God. He removes his sandals when he is told and he is fearful. As I said, we need to remember why Stephen is preaching this sermon. I'm not an enemy to you 
because of my Jewish heritage. I'm as Jewish as you are. I know Moses as well as you do. In fact, I know him better. Because I know that Moses believed the God that you're rejecting. And so he goes through and he explains, this Moses heard this. It's just through this thorn bush, he gives Moses the commissioning. And he tells Moses, I've heard my people's groaning and I will act. Now, here's, here's what's interesting. What Stephen is saying is when Moses took off his sandals, it's because that land was holy, because God was there. What's the accusation against Stephen? That he speaks against the holy temple of God. So Stephen likely is bringing this up to remind the people the temple is only holy if God is there. And wherever God is, that place is holy. Schnabel says, Stephen cites this divine assertion because of the claims of the Jewish leaders concerning the temple, the holy place, that Stephen is charged with speaking against in Acts 6.13. But Stephen makes the point that the holy ground is where God is, which implies that the temple in Jerusalem is not the only holy place. See, God assured Moses he had seen the affliction. This place is holy. I'm going to use you to lead them out. Remember 40 years ago when he wanted to lead them out? Well, now it's time. And all of a sudden, Moses has different ideas. And he has to be rebuked. But through Moses, God led them out. Moses brings them out of Egypt with signs and wonders. Now, he goes to the people, he has to explain, I'm not here on my own. I know you don't accept me as a Hebrew, but there's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know him? I am. He's called me. And if you follow me, you'll go to your, your promised land. Sign after sign and wonder after wonder. Ten of them, the plagues in Egypt, afflict the Egyptians and Israel is unaffected. The ten plagues were as much for Israel as they were for Egypt to help Israel recognize that Moses really was God's man. But they were for Egypt to bring them to a point to let God's people go. And that Pharaoh would not do it. His pride was so stubborn that he dared to challenge God. And he lost. It was the burning bush, though, that was a turning point for Moses. Looking back at that burning bush, I want to help you see an important application. Because that flaming and burning bush is just a reference to a thorn bush. I made that connection already. A thorn bush, what is it good for? It's just, it's an outcast. If it's on your property, you cut it down and you burn it. Yet God used this insignificant bush to display his glory to Moses. God could have chosen a fig tree. He could have chosen a cedar of Lebanon, right? He could have chosen anything. Majestic tree. He chooses a cursed weed to display his glory. Now, there's a thousand reasons why God chose to do that that we don't know. I do think one of the reasons why is because it's just God reminding us he doesn't use the majestic all the time. And oftentimes he can't because we're not. 
He doesn't use those things that we think he should because when it comes to God using someone, we're all thorn bushes, aren't we? It's what he has to work with. Moses was a thorn bush. He's a murderer and a coward. He doesn't have his whole life together. He is as unwilling to go as some of you are unwilling to serve. And yet through God and his movement in Moses' life, you know Moses' name. Not because Moses was so great, but because God was so great. Your name may never be written down in the history books. I don't care if people know my name. I really don't. I mean, who am I? But we better strive to make sure people know God's name. And so when we come to our excuses and our reasons, we have to remind ourselves, some of the reasons that we put forth are right. They're, they're good. They're true. I am nothing. I am no one. I am just a thorn bush. But you know what? God uses thorn bushes to display his glory in the world primarily because that's all he has to work with. God doesn't have the best tools. He doesn't, he's such a skilled worker, he doesn't use the best tools. But those willing tools he uses to display his glory in all the world. So we, beloved, are not to be perfect. You'll never get there. We are not to go out there and do it on our own strength. We can't. We are to rest upon the power that God gives us to to seek his leadership, to do what he has called us to do in Scripture, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and to obey his will. And in the end, people will remember God's name because his, his glory will be displayed through you, a broken vessel, a jar of clay. And so as we look at this, Moses is this faithful servant who is used by God to deliver his people and bring them to the promised land where Stephen and the Sanhedrin now dwell. And so Stephen is just doing everything he can to point people not to Moses, but to God who used Moses. Stephen is thinking, if I can get the Sanhedrin to think that more like Moses in his humility, maybe they'll believe the gospel. Because the Sanhedrin was thinking more like Moses in his early years. How, how could God not use me? I'm so great. I'm so good. I'm so righteous. I'm so smart. I'm so edgy. It doesn't mean anything to God. God can use people like that. He has. But God likes to use all the wrong people in our eyes to do his will. Why? So we can't take credit for it. So we can't walk around thumping our chest saying, this is my work. It doesn't take much for God just to snap his fingers and let it all come crumbling down, does it? It's not our work, it's his. See, God used Moses to preach the coming of Jesus who would fulfill the law and the prophets. Moses tells the people, God will raise up a prophet like me, pointing to Jesus. In fact, we see this very instruction given to those on the road of Emmaus in Luke 24, 7, beginning at Moses and the prophets, Jesus expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The, the narrative of Moses is not ultimately about Moses. It's about Christ. 
What is Moses' main job now at the time when he leads the people out? He's leading them home. He is their deliverer, and then he leads them home. Who is Jesus? He's our Savior, and he leads us home. Moses is a type of Christ. He points us to the Messiah, the true deliverer, the true Savior, the one who leads us to our eternal home. And I will tell you, the only way you get to that eternal home is if you come to the end of yourself. And you come to the point where you say, I have nothing good to offer the Lord. Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what that means? You don't meet the standard. It's as if you've got a, you've got a construction worker who's looking for the right piece. And he's looking at this one and says, nope, not that, not good, not good, not good, not good. Same idea of God looking at us. You're not good. You're not good. You're not good. You don't meet the standard. There is no one good, not even one, and that includes you. doesn't matter what mommy told you. You're not a perfect little angel. You're a sinner in need of a savior. And we need to get that in our children's heads. Moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas. Give them the gospel. Let them see they're not the apple of your eye, but Jesus is. Now, you can love them dearly, and you can give them all the sweets and candies you want, grandmas and grandpas, but give them Jesus. Moms and dads, give your children all the opportunities, but give them Jesus. It will set them up not just for this life, but the life to come. And as we close, let me encourage you that God does not look for perfect tools to, to, to use in this world. He doesn't have any. He's such a skilled craftsman, he can take... You and me, as corrupted as we are by sin, and he can make us more and more like Jesus, the perfect one, and he can bring something good out of us. We are simply the instrument in God's hands to bring about his perfect will, and because he is almighty, he can do that. Because he is all wise, he knows what he's doing. Because he knows all things, he knows how to use fallen Sinful, broken, scarred up people to bring about a good, glorious, perfect, divine plan that brings good into this world. Will you trust him? Will you say yes or you've been saying no? Will you serve as opposed to just coming in and punching the time card at church thinking that's enough? Will you evangelize? Will you speak the truth to those that you've been thinking about and praying about but haven't had the courage to speak up with? Let us be faithful. We're all thorn bushes. But may the glory of God be displayed through us. Let's pray. Father, as we close this morning, we thank you for your servant Moses. We thank you for your servant Stephen. Men who were as fallen and corrupted as we are, and yet, because of their faith, because of their willingness to be used by you, because of their courage that was given to them by you. We know their name only because you displayed your glory through them. Father, would you use us in our, just our, our little area of influence here in Cortland, Ohio, in Trumbull County to, to display your glory to those who are around us, to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, to stand for righteousness, that we would, we would make this about Jesus and not about all, all the other discussion points that are there. Let people know that when we show up to have a discussion, we're going to talk about Jesus. 
because that's who we must declare. We, I ask that as we close this morning and, and as we leave after Sunday school, that we would know without a shadow of a doubt that we are Christ's children, your children, and, and that you, you have saved us through Christ. And so, Father, as we come to this point, if there is someone here who does not know you, may they respond, even if it means to come forward and to fall before you in front of all the others to declare that they will live for you for all of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.